Well, good morning. My name is David. I'm the liturgist here, and it's my pleasure to be preaching for you this morning. For those of you here that were, that were here last week, uh, that are very nervous seeing me come back, don't worry, there won't be a quiz this morning. Uh, for those of you that have been studying all week, I'm sorry too. Uh, for you, those of you that weren't here, we started off our sermon uh, last week with a quiz on the disciples because I was still working out my, my teacher instincts uh, because I'm a high school teacher up at Miracosta High School, an English teacher. And I want to actually start out this morning by uh, taking you to my classroom for a moment, uh, in your imagination at least. Uh, if you were to exit my classroom, at Miracosta, the first thing you would see are some fields of grass, a couple baseball fields. That's exactly what I exit out into in my, uh, from my classroom. And if you were to take a right, uh, you would go up a short flight of stairs onto an outdoor stage. Uh, and this stage outlooks uh, or looks over what's called the Mustang Mall, which is a uh, uh, some grass areas and different concrete sidewalks. It's where all the students hang out during lunch or in between classes. Uh, and if you were to go out onto that stage uh, sometime uh, in late September, early October, you might see what I happened upon uh, one day where I walked out of my classroom, went up those stairs, and I saw this booth set up, this uh, simple wooden structure, uh, uh, no walls, just a wooden frame, had, I think had some cloth draped over it, uh, just standing there, unattended, on the middle of the stage, uh, and you would maybe be confused as to why it's there. Although when I first saw it, I said, I've seen this before, I know what this is. Uh, and that's because, gosh, almost 20 years ago, uh, my wife's boss invited us over to dinner and when we got to their house, uh, she invited us into their backyard, and there in their backyard was one of these booths. Looked pretty much exactly the same, a simple wooden structure. I think it had some cloth draped over it for a little roof, and they invited us to have dinner inside this little booth. Uh, now, the reason that they did that, and the reason why that was on the stage at uh, Costa was this was all to celebrate the Jewish holiday known as Sukkot. Now Sukkot, uh, which is still celebrated today, as you can uh, tell, uh, comes all the way from the Old Testament, from the book of uh, Leviticus, we have uh, descriptions of it, uh, and it's also known as the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, and the reason why we have these temporary booths is in Leviticus 23, there's this command when it comes to celebrating this holiday. It says, live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now it's this wonderful celebration of God's faithfulness in the wilderness as a reminder of how he shelters us. Uh, and the reason why I bring it up and tell you about it today is, of course, we started last week entering John chapter 7. We're going to continue that today. And the whole setting for this chapter is 
the festival of the tabernacles. This is the festival, if you remember last week, that Jesus' brothers were telling him to go attend in Jerusalem. They said, go make a, make a big show. Get everybody's, uh, uh, get public opinion back up for you. What they, what they were telling him to do was to go to the festival of tabernacles being celebrated in uh, Jerusalem. And I want to talk about that festival of tabernacles today in regards to what Jesus is going to say when he finally does show up and he does speak to the crowds. Because I think this specific religious event and its focus on the idea of temporary shelters is fitting for what Jesus is going to say about how he's going to accomplish his ministry. So let's go into John chapter 7. Uh, You can open your Bibles or we'll have it up on the screen. And we're continuing from where we left off last week in verse 14. So it reads like this. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're a demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Well, my favorite thing about this speech is that Jesus just comes out of the gates after what's going on here. Uh, Remember his brother's advice was go gain back public opinion. So his first thing to say is, why are you trying to kill me? Uh, Which is not the first step in doing so. Jesus is not passive aggressive. Uh, He will call it out uh, when he sees it. And we know that in the uh, context of what's going on in Jesus' ministry that this question he asks is uh, valid. People are trying to kill him. Uh, the, the religious leaders have it out for him. That's why we know that at this festival of tabernacles, people are talking about him in whispers. They know that people are out to get him, and Jesus is calling them out. And his question is a rhetorical question. Jesus understands fully well why the religious leaders are out to get him. Because he understands the nature of the conflict between him and the religious leaders. And as we're going to go through what he has to say, which is kind of complex, we'll see that all centers on their faulty and hypocritical adherence to the structure that is the Old Testament law. He calls out their hypocrisy right off the bat when he says, you follow Moses' law, right? None of you do. Why are you trying to kill me? Because we all know that part of the law is thou shalt not kill. So all of a sudden, there's cracks in the armor of the religious piety of the leaders. And then he goes into a 
a little bit more complicated, confusing part about circumcision. We'll read it, but we'll see why uh, it makes sense. He says, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So if you're not sure what's going on here, part of what it is is there was a law in the Old Testament of when a little boy was born, a certain amount of days before he should be circumcised. Sometimes that day would land on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to do work like this. However, he says, you guys have decided it's okay to break that law. Yet, when you see me actually heal an entire man's body, then you have a problem with it. I see some problems with the way you're interpreting the law and the way you're trying to adhere to it. And if you're wondering, what is this moment? He says, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. This is all a reference back to something that happened in John chapter 5. Uh, you might remember it. This is the moment when at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus encounters a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. He hasn't been able to walk for almost 40 years. And when he sees him, the man cries out for mercy. And in John chapter 5, verse 8, this happens. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And then after some questioning, the religious leaders found out that it was Jesus that did this. And it says in verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. We see Jesus doing this miraculous thing of healing this man that hasn't been able to walk for almost 40 years, a man in their own community, yet the Jewish leaders are hung up on a technicality. You can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And at first it seems like a minor moment, but if you read through the story of the book of John, this is the very beginning of the persecution of Jesus by the religious leaders. It starts here. This is the beginning of the conflict that leads to the crucifixion. Jesus knows what started there. He's not keeping it a secret. He's calling him out on it, even though he knows where this is all going to go. And he knows it's because even though he performs miracles, these people are so dedicated to their understanding of the law that they're going to miss the picture entirely. In the person and in the works of Jesus, the religious leaders are witnessing a fundamental change in their understanding of religion. When Jesus shows up, everything changes, but they can't see it. They're clinging to a structure that's meant to be temporary. The law. And that's keeping them from truly seeing who Jesus is. Jesus explains this when he talks about the idea of new wine. You might know this moment from Matthew when he says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. 
No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. He's referring to the law. It's an old wineskin, and what he's going to give is new. And so everything has to change. But the religious leaders are stuck with that old structure, and just like those old wineskins, they're bursting. They can't change with it. They can't understand the new wine within the structure of the old wineskins, within the structure of the law. And with this specific critique Jesus is making, we see the weakness of understanding God only through a structure like the law. We also see why this setting of the Festival of Tabernacles, which is dedicated to the remembrance of temporary shelters, all of a sudden becomes very relevant to what Jesus is trying to say. In the Festival of Tabernacles, we have these temporary shelters being built that are supposed to show the temporary shelters in the wilderness people lived in while waiting for the promised land. And Jesus is saying the law was a temporary shelter that you lived in waiting for the promised king. But now that king is here, and it's time to let go of those structures. It's time to shift your attention to me, to Jesus, and show, I want to show you that there's a new way to connect to God. And it isn't about a list of rules. It isn't about performing to a certain level to where you'll be accepted. It's all about knowing me and who I am. It's all about having a relationship with Jesus. This is fundamentally different than the way religion was ever experienced by anyone. There's a pretty wonderful set of lectures by the uh, professor Philip Carey from Eastern University. He's a professor of philosophy, and he does uh, a very intensive history of Christian theology. Uh, it's a set of lectures that I've listened to, and at the beginning, he says, you know, Christianity is different than a lot of other religions. He says this, unlike other religions, Christianity is essentially a faith, because it's not fundamentally about how to live, but about the life of another person, Jesus Christ. The wisdom and message at the heart of Christianity is not primarily a revelation about how to live, but primarily the story about who Jesus is, the gospel. In Christian theology, even the crucial theme of Jesus' own teaching, the kingdom of God, is subordinated to teaching about who Jesus is, the Christ, which means the king of the kingdom of God. Similarly, for Christian theology, all other questions, including very important ones like how do I get saved, are subordinate to the question, who is Jesus? I like this idea of understanding Christianity as a faith. That's something that all sounds familiar to all of us, although I think it's worth taking a moment to understand that word, faith. There's sometimes problematic understandings of it because sometimes in our modern world we, we are ready to replace faith with just intellectual surety of something. That if we agree something is true, that's faith. That if we believe something exists, that's faith. But if we think about how we use that word, if I say I have faith in someone, 
that means much more than I believe they exist. If I say I have faith in my wife, it means more than I believe she exists. It means that I trust her. It means there's something about her character that I believe in that means I can depend on that. If you say I believe in you to someone, you're obviously saying much more to them than I believe that you exist. It means I trust in who you are and I trust that you will be faithful to me. Paul says this in the book of Galatians when he talks about the difference between law and faith. He says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I like the translation that I read on this scripture because it gives an alternate way of reading it, which is this. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That we may be justified on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And if you take both of those translations together, we have faith in Jesus, and Jesus is faithful to us. That's why we have faith in him. Because we understand his goodness, we know who he is. We know that he is a God of love, he is a God of faithfulness, and we can have faith in that. We can believe in that. And that kind of trust, that kind of dependence only comes from relationship. I can say I have faith, I'm sorry, honey, that I keep picking on you. I can say I have faith in my wife because of what I know through our relationship. And we can say we have faith in Jesus because we've taken the time to get to know him. That we have relationship with him. I think that this is essential to living as a Christian. That it should be the center of all our faiths, of a relationship with our Savior. And once we have a faith in Jesus that's founded in a relationship with him, we stop relying on rigid structures of knowledge that can let us down. And also, it becomes that thing we can cling to in order to withstand any challenges to the structures of reality as we understand them. Many of us don't struggle with adhering too closely to Old Testament law. But we do have a lot of structures that can be dangerous, that we have problems with. There's a lot of things that are built by people as temporary shelters that distract us from the faith. Structures like ideology, dogma, things that are secondary or subordinate to Jesus. When we talk about ideologies, more and more faith communities in America have been entangled with political and cultural ideologies. You have voices from the radio, from social media and beyond that will tell you exactly 
what to believe, and what to think about the world based on structures of what are ultimately secular ideologies. And often these reliances on political ideologies have created disastrous schisms in our faith communities. Another issue that we can sometimes see in the church is this issue of dogmatic surety, of certitude, of hard-line theology that will tell you the answer to everything, will also warn you against stepping out of those answers. You see, the mystery of the divine, which Jesus is inviting us into, is not always easy to understand. It becomes easier when you have preachers or you have teachers who will tell you exactly what the answers are to all the questions raised in the scriptures. And so sometimes people will go, okay, I'll believe that, and go down the checklist. But in the end, sometimes these ways of thinking about faith end up offering the type of intellectual surety and rigid dualism that leaves little room for the personality of Jesus in your life. And I bring it up because we've seen some of the harm it can do when people are brought up with rigid structures of belief and then they can be challenged. And you end up with a harmful version of sometimes what's called deconstruction. Many of you probably have heard that term. In some ways, there's, it's been demonized a little bit. It's good to grow in your faith. I know my faith and beliefs have grown and matured over the decades. However, sometimes we see that this idea of deconstruction, of taking apart what you once believed with true, can leave some people with nothing. When people sometimes encounter counter-arguments or issues with the rigid, unquestioning structures of belief that they are raised with, they have nothing else in their faith to cling to, and then they leave the faith. In ways, faith like that is like a building made out of unreinforced brick that's hit by an earthquake. I thought that'd be an analogy Californians could understand. With nothing else to hold on to, when the intellectual earth beneath them begins to sway, their faith can crumble because structures bend and break when there's too much pressure put on them. But who Jesus is never breaks. And it always stays the same. And that's why we can have faith in it. And when Jesus is speaking in John chapter 7 at the festival of temporary shelters, of temporary structures, he's giving them God's plan for the future, which is don't cling to the structure, cling to me. That's the reinforcement of the building. No matter What kind of ground shakes underneath your faith you cling to that relationship? You say, Jesus, I don't know what to believe, but I believe in you. I believe in your faithfulness. I think that this is essential for the church as we move into the future. As we move into a world amidst powerful forces that seek to entwine their own ideologies and beliefs with the beliefs of the church. I think it's essential that the way of the follower of Jesus in the future 
and of all time must be founded on a relationship with Jesus himself. How do you build relationship? Well, the same way we build relationships with other people. You talk to them. We talk to Jesus through prayer. We spend time with him. We spend time in prayer and contemplation. We learn more about him by contemplating the picture of Jesus we have in the scripture, just like we're doing now by going through the book of John, learning more and more about who he is. And then, importantly, as we see Jesus himself offer in his big conclusive statement at the end of the Festival of Tabernacles, we build relationship through experiences with his Holy Spirit. And that's the final thing Jesus says at the Festival of Tabernacles. And I'd like to read that. I'd like to end this with a preview of what's to come in further sermons. I'm dipping a little bit into Peter's territory about what he'll preach on, but he's not here, so that's okay. Uh, So, in verse 37 of John chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But the Spirit has been given and is available to us. And so if you want to know more about who Jesus is, if you want to know more than just the rules you're supposed to follow, but you want to meet the God who this is all about. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to introduce you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through this scripture and that you invite us not just towards salvation, not just toward advice for good living, but you invite us into relationship with you. Lord Jesus, we know you are the center of all of the created universe. Make yourself the center of our lives and our beliefs. Lord, I pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be here right now. For those who want to meet you and get to know you more fully that the Holy Spirit would introduce their hearts to your presence. We thank you, Lord, that we can have faith in you and that you love us. In your name we pray, amen.